Hey, it's Eric Newcomer. Welcome to the Newcomer Podcast. This week, we have Claire Hughes-Johnson, the former chief operating officer at Stripe, and now the corporate officer there. She's got a book, Scaling People. It's all about management and tech and beyond. We get into her leadership principles, and she gives me some coaching. I get vulnerable. So that was fun. Stick around to the end to hear that. Really enjoyed the conversation. Give it a listen. Claire, welcome to the Newcomer Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Eric. It's great to be on. I've been digging through scaling people, <laughs> your sort of book on management and giving very tactical advice to founders. And it's hard not to read it with a really sort of self-absorbed lens. Now that I'm off on my own, you know, you end the book with a sort of a section on you and it's it's sort of all about how to sort of run a company. Some of the portions are more focused on larger companies, but excited to talk through some of the, what you outline in the book and get into, you know, Stripe a little bit. And I think it'll be a fun episode. Hey, if you have some personal anecdotes you want to share, <laughs> we could dive right into <laughs> yeah, just, a case study. Exactly. A case study. Before we get into that, I mean, what motivated you to write Scaling People in the first place? Really, it was Patrick and John Collison. I did not have on a bucket list to write a book, which is ironic because my family, my mother's written a book, my brother, my sister-in-law, but not on my list. But they both felt, the Stripe founders both felt that, and of course, they're incredibly well-read, they're autodidacts, and that there was not a book. They founded a company when they were teenagers, I don't know, and sold it, and then they founded Stripe when they were basically college-aged. But that there was not a book that was sort of tactical and practical enough on management and company building. And I had to agree that as Stripe was scaling, all three of us were meeting with a lot of our users, right? And a lot of Stripes, especially early customers, were high growth internet companies themselves. And we'd end up in these dinners with other, you know, founders, CEOs, COOs. And when we sort of thought the topic of the dinner might be their billing and payments infrastructure, (laughs) The topic of the dinner often ended up being really organizational scaling questions. Right. You know, how often does your leadership team meet? Who's on the leadership team? How do you do like business reviews? What are your key metrics? How did you choose them? Do you have a performance rating system? And so John would be like, he'd say, we need Claire in a box. (laughs) So I think that this became that. I think you talked in the book about like the mission being sort of expanding the GDP of the internet. Right. And in some ways, you think if you have a service, you know, oh, they'll ask about, yeah, like how to use Stripe better or whatever. But really, it's building a business on the internet that they're very oriented around. And ideally, they never have to think about Stripe, you know, at all. And they want to know everything else. No, I think if you think about the origin story of the founders, too, I mean, they grew up in rural Ireland. I think the internet was their source of information and innovation and they had to teach themselves about it and they're looking to make that knowledge accessible. You're right. In the beginning of the acknowledgement, you talk about sort of a scene with you and John. I mean, can you share that quickly? I feel like it gives a good sense of your experience at Stripe. Yeah. One of my first speaking engagements for Stripe, which of course everyone wanted to prep me for very carefully because I was going to get up and talk about payments and about the company and I had kind of kind of just joined, was for this conference that used to be in Ireland, in Dublin, Ireland, that then moved. But it was in Ireland then called Money 20. And I think I underestimated the celebrity that John and Patrick had already achieved. It is a relatively small country, Ireland. 
And I was standing outside the building of the conference with some other folks from Stripe. And I think we had some Stripe like materials with us. So it's probably easy to connect whoever walking by. And a journalist, an Irish journalist walked by and pointed from like, you know, many feet away. You, you're the lady. You're the lady with the lads. And I guess the news of my hiring had made it to Ireland. And then I was definitely inextricably linked to these two Irish lads from there on. And it is actually very fun to be in Ireland with both of the Collisons. I don't know if it's fun for them, but it is like you're in some celebrity entourage. And I thought it was a real sort of eye opener for me on how much of the radar screen we were already on, even then, which was early. I mean, you know, you'd sort of establish yourself at Google. Is that the right way to say it? And you're coming from Google directly to Stripe, right? What made you consider sort of the job at Stripe or like how did that come to pass? I mean, I'd been at Google for 10 years, almost 11 years when I joined Stripe. So I'd had a long career there. And I, I will say, I think I was fortunate that somehow in that career, I really got a chance to do sort of operations, sales revenue, and some general management, even producty stuff in the end. And I'd gotten on some not actual but virtual list of, hey, this is a leader, this is an executive who might be interesting as a COO candidate. And I'm quite sure I owe a lot of that also to Sheryl Sandberg, who I think put my name out there after she left. Did Google. you work? You worked. I worked with her very closely with Cheryl prior. I joined her team originally, and hmm. then I was basically in her staff at various times. And when she left, I ultimately inherited about half of her org, and so was carrying on her legacy, I think, internally in Google. But anyway, I was on this list. So Eric, I have to say, I'd actually had the chance to meet a lot of founders of growth stage companies, because I had started to think for my own development, my own career. In the last few years at Google, I was like, is this, am I going to stay here forever? And I took some of those meetings and I got quite close on potentially taking a role. And I didn't actually like make, in the end, choose to leave. And I'd almost given up and thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to finish some work on self-driving cars. I might take a leave of absence. I've really got to find myself, whatever that is. Right. And I was introduced to Patrick. Very tech thing to say. I'm going to go work on self-driving cars. To find- <laughs> yeah, I, I was just going to like <laughs> right. tap out my Whatever career. the cutting edge is. Yeah, anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, working on self-driving cars was actually strategic for me in that the role was very COO-like, yeah. role, smaller team, earlier yeah. stage. Yeah. It all made sense in my development head. But yes, that did sound very Silicon Valley. But anyway, I met Patrick. I actually initially refused to take the meeting because I said, oh my gosh, payments and no, I'm not looking. Really? Wow. Yeah, that's a big joke within Stripe that I'm pretty reluctant payments (laughs) person. But I did end up meeting him for a breakfast. And in another Silicon Valley kind of story, we ended up talking for hours and it was great. And which then turned into a multi-month sort of mutual interview process. But sorry, long-winded answer. Why no, it's I, fascinating. Why did I end up joining? So I ended up joining for reasons, some of which were criteria I had started to realize matter to me. But one, the founders. Like, I mean, this is like I'm taking, instead of investment money, this is my time as an investment. Right. You really got to believe these are the founders to get behind. And I did very much. And I What stage today. was it? Stripe, when I joined, was about 160 people and had, you know, millions of revenue, not where it is today. When I started talking to Patrick, I think it was about 60 people. So Mm. pretty early. I mean, it was, you know, still already 
four or five years old because they hung around 10 to 20 people for a while and then we're really scaling now. So this right. was the year, 2014. I joined at the end of 2014 where they, I think, started the year about 40. Hmm. And I met him about 60. And the year ended, we were, I think, 180. <laughs> so yeah. it was a big year that year, 2014, for Stripe. But point is, the founders and you know, I still today believe in them and, and their ambition, their vision, their ability to listen and collaborate, but also to lead and to learn. The second was I did really care about being in a company where the mission, and you mentioned it, increase the GDP of the internet, but really the potential impact of the product was meaningful. And Stripe is really an infrastructure product. And I had spent some years at Google as you alluded to, you know, selling advertising against search results and <laughs> website results. And that is important. It right. is an engine of commerce for the yeah. internet, but it didn't feel as meaningful. Like I really wanted to be part of economic development in a certain way. And this is, I realized B2B is really my jam. And Stripe was like in the thick of really important B2B infrastructure. How did the, you know, the second choice end up doing. Did you have similarly good judgment on the other companies you were No one has asked me that. I think that those who know would say yes. <laughs> I am not going to get beyond that. But I walked away from actually, I would say in one case, very much yes. Right call. In another very... Right call to not go. You're saying. Not go. Like, I just didn't see the company. Well, one, I didn't think I had the right chemistry with the leaders. The other was I didn't see them going like you kind of want to have a vision where you're like, this is where this company is today. What's its product? Where's the market? But you want to see an extension of that. Like, where does that go? And if you can't tell yourself that story, it's hard to imagine. I mean, but Stripe, why did I join the founders, yeah, yeah, the mission, yep. <laughs> the B2B infrastructure, right. and then the people that I met, the culture, I could see myself working there, just like anyone joins anything. You want to be able to see yourself working there. And the last reason was... I could see that I was going to learn and have an impact because there was stuff they needed that I knew how to do, but also really learn some new skills for myself. Yeah, I'm a pretty ambitious person in terms of my own journey. I mean, you know, you'll literally hear, I mean, maybe a little less these days, but for a while, you know, I think, you know, when I covered Uber all the time, people would say, oh, we need like a Sheryl Sandberg type. Or it's sort of, you have this sort of story of like, you know, the young founders who haven't managed. I mean, you talk about this some in Scaling People, you know, just like a founder hasn't necessarily been in a company sort of that big before. Yeah. But then it's sort of what you're talking about in sort of making the job decision where you're coming at a point where they sort of need a little help maybe to get to the next stage. So, you know, a lot of pressure. I don't know. I guess specifically like in the Stripe case, like what was that interaction like coming in and trying to be this, you know, chief operating officer for founders very much associated with the company, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think obviously I know Cheryl, but I was never inside Facebook. So right. I can't really speak to that construct. But right. I actually think my experience with Stripe was quite different. Yeah. My understanding is Cheryl came in and at the time, really she and Mark divided a lot of stuff and she sort of ran her pieces and plugged into his staff and he ran, hmm. you know, product eng. Stripe, in my interview process and in my beginning in the role, it was very clear that this was going to be a collaboration of a team. Yeah. 
So I was not going to just independently run off with a bunch of <laughs> go solve and, the business go problem. Solve, or whatever. Go run the business, right. right? That was not, this was right. something, I mean, that I admired and was drawn to. Patrick and John, yeah, they've not managed a big company before, but very strong, good judgment, good intuition, lots of opinion about what it was going to take to build not just the product, as you alluded to, but also the company. Right. There was no decision that I felt I made that was major in sort of the org building side of Stripe or the process building where they weren't involved. Yep. And I welcome that. I learned from them. They're both in different ways, again, just sort of ahead of their time and their ability to mature in that way. It was much more mutual. And I thrive in more team environments, right. collaborative environments. And I also appreciated that I was included, by the way, in a lot of decisions right. about the And about Stripe the wasn't, you know, a lot, some of these companies, startups where investors talk about it, it's like they wish they could change the CEO, but they can't. So they need to bring in a CEO. Whereas obviously with Stripe, you know, the Collisons exactly. are sort of the, among the most admired founders in the world. And, and I made the right choice, right? <laughs> instead of a fixer-upper, yeah. One of the things that's sort of interesting in the book is that you pull from non-Silicon Valley, non-tech mm -hmm. sort of case studies in company design. And I wanted to dig into that yeah. because yeah. Stripe and the Collisons seem to embody it to me like Silicon Valley sort of. So how is that? received and sort of where do you think tech can sort of learn the most from old guard or just other industries? Yeah. No, it was really actually an important part of the early stage of the book development was a conversation I actually had with Patrick where we talked about how fundamental the book was going to be. I was like, you know, this book should be so we were talking, you know, the target is a little bit the sort of higher growth tech company reader. But we're like, it should be so fundamental that it applies pretty broadly. And we came up with this idea, which is I should interview leaders from really different like industries. So, you know, healthcare, academia or nonprofit. I have Dominique Crenn, who's a Michelin star chef, who's got restaurants in San Francisco and Zanny Mittenbettos, who's the editor in chief of The Economist. Like I really interviewed this really wide range and that came early as a concept, which was like, let's validate some of what I, at the abstraction level, I'm talking about management and leadership and that actually applies pretty broadly. I do think that early on at Stripe, I'll just reflect on your point about tech, which is there is this challenge that I think because a lot of Silicon Valley companies are innovating in the product right. they've developed, they become kind of rightly a little addicted to innovating. Right. And they think, well, should I just innovate a lot of other things, like how you run a company? Right. <laughs> and one of my, I don't know, the word coming to my mind is talk tracks, but things that I talked to John and Patrick about while I was interviewing yeah. was that I believed in management, like right. this fundamentally good management and just smart operating structures that are not reinventing the wheel. You guys yeah. got to like actually be with me here. Like, right. I don't think we should build an entirely new way of thinking about performance feedback. Right. And we may do a very vanilla version of it early on, but better to do that than let the perfect be the enemy of the good or try to do a first principle. Exactly. Re rewrite. That was the phrase I was going to throw yeah, in. Like, I mean, it's like positively always... I mean, what's wrong with doing everything from first principles? At some point, it just becomes, I assume, like exhausting and you, you might not be the best at constructing well, it, the system. Yeah, it also becomes like, look, management <clears throat> structures, hierarchies of man have been in place for hundreds of years, Eric. Right. 
And like there's like holacracy, like there's been a few attempts to innovate. And I do think the workforce, the expectations of workers have changed. So I'm not saying we're doing what we did 100 years ago right. in the same way, but like you got to pay attention to that. And actually, Patrick, as we started talking, being Patrick, got really interested and started reading studies on management mm. and management practices. And there's actually pretty good academic research and data on countries, by the way, that have good management education mm. and management practices having better economic outcomes. And so he was like, yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> you know, like, let's just put some fundamentals in place. But I, I, unfortunately, I do think some young companies want to reinvent more than they should. And that's because they've invented maybe a great product. And they're like, right. well, why don't I great, invent great ways to work? What were know? like, just to give people sort of a couple, like, just like key straightforward things where you weren't reinventing the wheel that it's like, okay, we should implement this or yeah, you know, we're just, yeah. I mean, I think there, I mean, the book has a lot of stuff on operating structures. Like I think it's really important to have goals and metrics that everyone knows are the most important metrics for a company and review them publicly with everyone. Right. And have articulated your mission. And then, you know, where are you going over the next three to five years? I think it's really important to have clear feedback structures like here's a routine of when you can expect to get feedback. Ideally, it's happening more continuously, but young companies especially, a lot of management is pretty new to people, so they're not giving as much feedback. So you right. actually have to build in more structures for it, which is sort of counterintuitive. Companies are like, oh, we're just running after this prize and you know we can't be distracted by that. I'm like, well, actually, it's the most important thing because you aren't used to doing it. One point of pushback on sort of management structure is in tech is if you're going for exponential growth... The company just keeps changing yeah. so much that there's no time and that many of those structures are set up for companies that hmm. are the same size and doing the same tasks year in and year out. Yeah, I think that's a very legitimate argument to a point. Yeah, It's legitimate when, I mean, I talk a lot in the book about how do you get the level of weight of structure appropriate to the stage of company? And where a lot of companies fall over is they either do nothing <laughs> Or they put too heavy a structure in a young organization. And that's like ridiculous. People are going to hate it. It's going to feel bureaucratic. You've got people in tools and checklists. And like, I've actually talked to some founders because now I talk to a lot of founders. I invest in companies. Some of them are so thoughtful and rigorous. They're like running the company like it's a 2,000 person company. Mm. I'm like, wow, right. no, come back. Super lightweight. Right. Get back. So it, you can be on either side of that continuum. Mm. But I think. More mature companies do have more stable and probably deep processes where what I'm articulating are pretty simple hmm. and could be executed pretty quickly. And I think the mistake that you see get made that gives all this a bad rap is like sort of bad processes over heavy defense. I have something in the book I call a defensive process, which is something went wrong. So let's put a bunch of checks in place to stop the thing from happening mm. as opposed to let's put things in place that give us momentum, which is what you want. You want actually things that remove friction at the appropriate level for the stage of company. Do you have a sense of like what companies in tech have, you think like the best organizational structures or I don't know how much you surveyed that or if you have sort of, you know, I really didn't. And I think this question can stymie me because as you said, companies change a lot. And right. you know what changes them the most, Eric, is their leadership. And so the most interesting companies in tech are companies like, for example, 
Looking at Microsoft under Satya Nadella is one of the most interesting things mm. to me as a student of business and tech. Mm. And because he has just dramatically shifted the trajectory of that company. And he did so actually fairly quickly in the first three to five right. years and then has built upon those very decisive actions. But I think that's an example of leadership mattering so much. So like when I say operating structures or org structures, like you'll really catch me saying, well, who's running it right now? And what yeah. do they believe in? Because often tech companies, again, because they're younger, even Microsoft isn't that old, right? Like are really reflections of the founders and reflections of the CEO and their cultural beliefs, their mm -hmm. actions and behaviors. And so my answer ends up being who are leaders I admire. Right. And I don't know if I want to get into some kind of Sophie's Choice conversation, especially if they're Stripe customers, I could right. get in trouble. Right. But really would say to anyone who's thinking from the outside, really look for that. What is your focus at Stripe these days? What's your role today? Well, today I'm a corporate officer and advisor, which is appropriately ambiguous. Extremely vague. Hard, Very to, vague. hard to guess. I get to, yeah. do, I get to do whatever is needed in a different way than day-to-day -day operating. But what it really looks like is, yes, advice to founders, the executive team. I do help with some leadership hiring and onboarding, coaching of leaders who would like it. I work with a couple of teams more closely, meaning I sort of review their work with them. I'm just sort of like an extra coach in addition to their leader of their org. And I've done some projects. You know, in some cases, it's looking at, you know, maybe there's a function we evolved over time and we want to go back and say, hey, did we make the right choices? Is this team as effective as it could be? I still obviously talk to customers. Stripe's hmm. users mean a lot to me. I have relationships with I'm a, a Stripe lot of user. Them. Eric, I want to thank you. I tried to get you to give me some feedback and it was two more was what I took away, especially on taxes. Yeah. 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 Like get feedback. Like I get feedback and I also do sessions with earlier stage companies because I think you can tell I love them. And I think there's a lot of influence and impact to be had when you can get with a founder who's really just shaping their culture and their operations. So that's what I do. How do you think about like feedback, I guess, in the corporate world? Like, I feel like that's a big sort of piece of the book, both in your sort of with direct reports and then now sort of when you're, I don't know, SWAT team coming in, when they identify, I guess, an issue. Like, are you giving unvarnished feedback, like brutal? Like on what scale of like the whole truth, like yeah. do you think about when giving somebody feedback? Yeah, I think, I mean, when I first started working at Google, and this will probably resonate for you because I know you're a journalist and you've talked to many. I was shocked at how direct the engineers in particular were, like yeah. really critical and direct. Like that's a terrible idea and here's why. You know, and it was not the world I had been in working in consulting or at, in government. I'd worked in politics and government. And at first I sort of got defensive and felt like, am I going to make it? But right. I, I've come to kind of love it. But when I do talk about feedback, there is a certain level of directness that I don't think is productive because, look, we all, if you've studied brain development, you know, we have this prefrontal cortex and it's making a decision on are we, you know, going to like, should we fight or flee? Someone has attacked us. And right. the minute you attack someone close to the bone, like this is their work, this seems like a judgment on them or their team they're going to actually stop listening to you and just be thinking about survival. If it's so direct that they feel like it's Yeah, no, it becomes then, a thing about right. survival and right. who can hear anything and have a right. productive conversation when they're wondering if they're going to die, right. right? And so that I'm not so interested in, that kind of feedback. 
But what I do, I have an operating principle for myself that I talk about in the book, which is say the thing you think you cannot say. Yeah. And so what I'm trying to push the reader and push the thinking on for myself and for anyone is there is a way not to be so direct that you create an attack response, but be open and willing to put stuff on the table that you might have filtered out. Like for me, I things I would have filtered out 20 years ago, I'm trying to put that topic out, whether that's with an individual about right. something I'm observing that I think they could be better at, or whether it's a, you know, as you said, maybe I have an observation for Stripe and I get on a call with a member of the leadership team and I say, but I don't say, hey, I think you're getting this wrong. Right. I say, you know what I'm, you know, from my seat, which now at Stripe is, you know, 10,000, 20,000 feet away, I have a couple things I'm worried about that right. I'm doing. I'll say that. And they'll say, well, okay, well, you know, they're intrigued. They're like, well, what do you mean? And then I'll say, well, why don't you tell me what you are? You know, like, maybe I'm off. Maybe you, like, then we kind of get in this interesting conversation where we're both sort of looking at the problem together right. and they're saying, I'm worried about X and Y. And I'm like, interesting. I also have X on my list. What right. am I doing about it? Can I help? But, you know, you're trying to enter into it as a partner as opposed to someone in opposition. Right. The other is just like, you're, you know, you're in a room, whether it's a virtual room or an actual room. You might find this, Eric, with your small team. And there's something that's not being said, right? right? Like this happens. Like maybe someone, maybe you've produced a piece of content and some, like there's an aspect to it that isn't your level of quality that you want right. or expect. And you got to be sort of reading the room, even virtually. Like, what are, you know, what's the body language? What's the tone? Are people hmm. making eye contact? Are people shifting around? Right. Are there comments in the doc that are kind of weird? Right. Like, sometimes people comment in a doc, like, I'm not sure I understand this. You know, right. and you're like, what, what does that mean? And you're, my job, I think, as a leader is, one, to get everyone else's opinion on the table first. Because if I give my opinion, usually the conversation ends. Right. But the other is to sort of say, hey feels like there's something we're not saying right. in this meeting. And sometimes I'll say, I don't know what it is, but it feels kind of tense in here. Right. And people are going, what? Like, how is she? But, you know, then if I'm comfortable, if the person looks comfortable, I'd call on someone. I'd say, Eric, give me in a hypothesis. What is the thing we're not <laughs> talking about? Right. What is, you know, and often you break through in that meeting, in that moment, to the real thing. Hmm. Like there's always like, you know, often there's- Is there an example or what type? It's, I mean, I can think of the example you sort of, where it's just like, this isn't good, but people- Like don't I just don't think bought. this is right. good. Like there's right. a team that's uncomfortable with their work product. And the problem is their manager's in the room. Right. And they don't want to be selling out their manager. Right. Right. And you can kind of read it. And what you're trying to do is get someone to go there. So you right. don't have to be the one saying, I don't think this <laughs> work product- like, but occasionally, oh, so it can be a layering problem too. Like you're above the manager, the man, they don't want to, there's turn, a yeah. power dynamics issue. There's a layering issue for the folks in the room. It's often though, these things where you can tell the team isn't behind their leader. Right. That's one form of this. Actually, this would be a great new section of the book. Like, well, how, what are these like frameworks? So one is that one is a thing going on usually that is a friction. So it's with another team or it's intra-team. You're like, huh? Why does this feel like not everybody agrees with the thing that was written in this document? Right. And that's not necessarily a, we don't agree with our manager. That's more a, we have unresolved, you know, enmity potentially, or right. we feel like we're in conflict with one another because we don't agree that we're doing the right thing as a team, right? Or this other team is blocking us, but we don't want to throw them under the bus. So we're sort of talking around it. Like there's this sort of 
what's the friction thing? So there's right. one, I don't agree with my manager. Other is a friction thing. I think there's often just also forest for the trees hmm. where you're in a business review or you're reviewing work product and you're like, yeah, good, thanks. Metrics look fine. And then you step back and you're like, okay, metrics look fine this month relative to last month. Right. But if I look at the last year, the growth rate, you're, I mean, these are just basic stuff, but it happens. You'll be like too focused on what you're doing right now and not think, is this actually a good product? Why are we not seeing more user adoption? Like, why have we only grown 10% when the rest of the products are growing 40%, right? And like you, that your job as a leader, especially, is to have that bigger picture in mind or maybe even bigger. But is this the right strategy, right? But I think that is another category of zooming out with everyone and saying, we're having the wrong conversation, folks. It sounds like part of what you're getting at is like the challenge for senior leaders when you're not always interacting with all the company to actually That's have authentic conversations. To really with, with talk your... about the real stuff. That's right. right. That's because, right. You know, I don't want to, you know, I was at Bloomberg, which is like a big company. It is. And in some ways I've come to appreciate more of the, you know, process type stuff that I didn't at the time. I mean, I think reporters in particular can be not, you know, not very cat-like, bad, bad, not organization, people necessarily hard to manage or convince to believe in a lot of the process stuff. Can understand it more now trying to build a very small company. But there was a level of like, I don't know, they would send these memos out that I feel like a lot of people would roll their eyes at. And like, you know, they were so disconnected from, you know, how do you make sure besides this sort of like trying to be really present in the meeting, it's like you can set a strategy, you can lay out sort of values. But if like, I don't know, the bottom level and the middle level are like, oh, I think we're doing the actual work and we know what the actual work is. And like, it's disconnected from sort of the message. Like, how do you find alignment there in yeah. a big company? Well, first of all, thank you for sharing. You actually shared a bunch of things I want to reflect on. So one is, as you now have your own organization, you're coming to appreciate some of the challenges of management and leadership. This right. happens to me when people leave Stripe. They sometimes write to me. They're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you were doing all these things. Right. Anyway, so one. Two, I think that there is a reluctance, especially if someone, I mean, journalists tend to be independent operators right. often. And like, it's very hard to be leaders of that type. And often so do engineers, like they want to do their own work and like kind of get out of my way. But the real thing is you're sharing is like being empathetic. Like there's an experience that a lot of employees have with their leadership, especially in bigger organizations, which is, do you even know what like I experience? Like you're sending right. me this memo that is so far beyond my day-to-day -day reality right. that I find it like hard to sort of take you seriously, right? right? And that happens in so many places. And I think we just don't, it's sort of how you end up with a lot of the memes about corporate America, right. right? And so let's talk about that. And I think that's a product of disconnection between leaders and the actual work day-to-day -day reality right. of the people who work somewhere. And, you know, I, I advocate in the book to some degree, but I think I probably could celebrate it even more that I think that is not the way modern organizations can afford to be run. I mean, first right. of all, and you know this, Eric, there's so many, whether it's internal in the company or external, formerly known as Twitter or, you know, there's apps like Blind. What, there's a lot of ways to hear feedback about right. what's going on in your organization, right. whether you like it or not, out in the social 
world, social media world, there's also ideally internal forums you've created. But right. there's something that's just basic, which is why don't you know have in your schedule as a leader, let's like have a conversation, have a lunch with right. a bunch of folks in a different division and mm-hmm. ask how it's going. Or I, the Stripe founders do a great thing. Even like today, they'll write something up that they're going to send to the whole company and they will shop it to different people in the company, like almost a sampling, right? No. Like a core sample and say, was this good? Like, give me feedback on the thing. Because think of all the minutes of people's time you're going to spend reading that right. communication. Right. You're like, this is going to cost hours of employee time. Make sure it's freaking good. Right. And right? they always they are, you know, great writers. Their letters are great. I mean, and there is that sort of, I don't know. I don't know if Paul Graham gets credit where he would, you know, let all the people sort of read it and say, here's who read it. And I feel like they take some, uh, you know, th- they, that's become I think that's a, a fair. smart tech thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, but why does it have to be a tech thing? Right, right. Why don't the Bloomberg, I mean, gosh, it's a media outlet. I know. Why why don't they have some people workshop the content and edit it, you know? I mean, mean, one challenge is just, you know, if it's like if you're like the good student and you get the teachers, like some people aren't like doing X, Y, and Z. I feel like as like an attentive student, I would still read it onto myself because it's like I'm really dialed into what the teacher's saying. But then they would be giving you this negative feedback that didn't apply to you. And so I feel like all company communication can be a real challenge, especially if it's like oh, negative, I, because I, it's like, what, am I guilty of this? You know, no, you're sending I'm, it to my inbox. No, we're talking about that, like, yeah, yeah, why aren't you all filing your expense reports Right, on right. Time? But, it, but on, you know, for a newsroom, it could be like, oh, we need to write like shorter stories. But like we had a magazine, you know, anyway, it, sorry. Now I've gotten very specific to Bloomberg, but yeah. No, but I think one, you're sh- again, showing empathy because this is hard. Some of these messages are not easy and they're right. not really mass messages. Right. But you have to send them mass because you can't be like targeted on. Right. And people get right. told their stories are too long. Right. But I think that my advice still stands, though, which is like, what is your objective with this? And when you shop it around to someone, are you meeting your objective? And that's not that hard to suss out. But it is true that I say this in the book, like any channel of communication in a company is never universally loved. Right. Because we're all consumers. You like to read. I like to hear. I want to watch a video. I want to read like a bite sized headline. I want to read a treatise. You know, like no one's going to be happy with anything as a leader that you do in one particular channel. And you have to just live with that. That doesn't mean you shouldn't still try to make it the best that it can be, but it's hard. This one just sort of came into my head, but it feels like a key sort of leadership question at the moment. You know, like with Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg, there's been a lot of not wanting managers managing managers. And this idea that Facebook had created like a culture where, you know, you want to get as many people below you as possible. And that's sort of success coming from a company that, you know, had at one point tried to celebrate, you know, this mythical like 10x engineer who right. like is just like such a great solo contributor. Right. Move Why fast they... and break things. Right. Very I don't flat. Know. How do you think about that? I've never been inside of Facebook, but I have a view on a phenomenon I've seen in a few places, which is especially when you're in a high growth mode and you've hired a lot of really high achieving people who are ambitious and who want to keep score. And a weird thing happens inside companies. I don't think it's just tech, which is how many people in your org becomes a metric of success in your score, which is actually not the metric. Like the metric should be your output. 
Right. Should be the ROI of the individuals you have. But that's harder to measure. So everyone starts obsessing about the input, which is, well, in the last budget cycle, did I get 100 new people and more layers in my org? And it becomes this self-fulfilling, terrible right. cycle of adding what I think become, you know, it can end up being too many people, too many layers of management, not enough people doing the work, which is the founder's nightmare, right? Like, I mean, and mine when I was COO. But you see how it happens, which is you're just growing quickly and people are sort of excited about their growth and then they start marking their progress by like accumulating more humans. And it's just not actually that great because, and this is where I talk about operating structures. Like, are you measuring like, why do you need all those people? And what is the work outcome? What is the metric of success? It is not how many humans are right. in the org. It is, yeah, revenue. But here's the other problem is say you've got a great business model and your revenue is exploding you kind of get comfortable with the number of people also right. exploding. That's not necessarily smart, especially in tech where you get so much leverage, right, from the tech product as opposed to a human manufacturing product. Right. Uh, I once interviewed a CEO that I loved this idea, and I didn't quite implement it at Stripe in the way I wish I had, which is when teams would come to him for more resources, he would send in this little SWAT team like I think he called it the optimizers. I mean, mm. like they would come in and they'd say, okay, let me just understand what does everyone in the team do today? Right. And this is very lean, you know, Six Sigma stuff. Do you have an opportunity to automate some of what you're doing today or improve your process to get more efficient? And then do you understand like the measure of outcome of all of each individual and additional person enough? Right. They do basically a consulting project before they would agree to add to the headcount. Hmm. And I'm sure the people, by the way, who received that project were pretty unhappy because they were like, I told you I need more people. Leave me alone. But the concept is a good one, which is how do you guard against like inflation, essentially? Right. Because then it really impacts the culture. I think what Mark Zuckerberg, to me, from reading it is railing against is this is not a culture that is valuing the right thing, nor are we moving quickly because we've right. created too many layers. What is the difference between like coaching and therapy. You know, even in the book, you talk a little bit about, you know, how you, I think you said you started to work out more because you saw that as like part of your work task. Yeah. And there is a degree, I feel similarly, you know, there, there is a degree, especially as a founder or someone where literally everything I'm thinking about is, you know, I always want to be improving the company. Yes. The sort of line between Eric's personal psychology and Eric's work, like it, it feels like a made up sort of Difference. And obviously in a bigger company, you have this extra layer of problem with real professional boundaries and things you probably can't sort of get into even if they would help. So anyway, that that's the morass. Like, how do you think about separating coaching and sort of therapy? No, it is a great question. And it's another one, Eric, that I wish I expounded on more in the book. But I'll tell you that, I mean, you'll hear me use the word continuum a lot because I'm not like a binary thinker. I'm more of a, a nuanced thinker. And so I always use continuums. But in the continuum of a management job, the first part of the continuum, like where everyone should be able to sit as a manager is I have to get execution done. There are tasks. They are assigned to my team and to me. I am accountable. I must organize the work, who's doing the work, how we're going to measure it, how we're going to report on it, who we need to sort of involve to get it done. And it's like project management, right? There's a whole piece of management, which is really, how do I get from A to B? And then here's the challenge. In order to do that, you have to organize humans. 
and human work. And in order to get humans at their best capacity, like let's get more output from this team, you need to coach them. And so a lot of the book focuses on how do I identify the kinds of talent I have, what their motivators are, what will get the best work out of them. And then how do I open up the dialogue where I'm coaching them? Yes, I hope, by the way, reinforcing what they do well, which we sometimes forget to do as managers, but also saying, hey, you know, I wonder if, you know, you know, that particular report you, you publish every few weeks could be a faster process. Like, what do you think? And like getting the person to realize they might be like obsessing about some aspects of the report that they should just cut or whatever it is, but you want to coach them. And I think what happens when you're coaching is it either leans toward help you with this task, like maybe you're doing too much analysis for the report, or as you just alluded to, ends up being a little bit more psychological. I think some of the bigger management challenges are when an individual isn't confident in their work mm. product. Maybe they have low self-esteem. Maybe they're not comfortable speaking in the meeting and therefore they're not contributing to the team and they're not comfortable. It's like not that their work is bad. It's that right. they are just like individually struggling. And so I don't think it's appropriate for a manager to ever think they're a therapist. Right. But I do think you end up on that boundary of what can we do to help you improve your confidence? And a little bit like where's this coming from? which is when you get into this, well, you know, my mother used to criticize me. Like, and so I think as a Will manager, you go there though? Or if they- so, so I would like, look, if someone offers that to me, I'm never going to go there. I'm never going to say, do you think there's a pattern from your childhood <laughs> right. that is playing out in the team right now? Right? Like that, but- if Which someone, may very well be the case. Yeah. Which, oh, by the way, is a hundred percent the case. Right. It's certainly the case for me, but- I'm never going to go there and ask about their childhood patterns. I'm right. going to say, here's what I'm observing. How right. can I help you be better? Right. But if they go there and they say, well, I've always had this issue with right. criticism because of X, I'm going to thank them. I'm going to say, wow, that's a great insight. Great for me to know. Thank right. you for sharing it. And kind of steer the conversations like, if there's something you want to work on that, I hope you are. You know, that sounds like something you could work on. But like, let me think about my job which is to help you with this existing work. You're going back on the continuum to the task. You're like, the way it's manifesting for me and for the team is that you're not getting the work done quickly enough. Right. And how do I support you to do that? And I have, believe me, I've been there. I've actually had to say to some people like, wow, feels like the conversation you really want to have is more of a conversation about, you know, like digging into your mental health right. and your status and let me tell you, here's resources we have as a company, right. or ideally, or here's a place you might go to find those resources because it is not appropriate to, I mean, I'm not trained as a right. therapist, but I mean, ultimately the golden rule, it's funny because the golden rule kind of cuts both ways for management. On the one hand, treat people as you would like to be treated for sure. So if someone shares something really vulnerable, be empathetic and thank them and try right. to be a human and say, wow, that sounds hard. How can I help you get what you need? But on the other hand, you do have to manage different people differently. And there will be people who have like a boundaries issue. Right. And your job- And they might break a boundary and then still try to criticize you for the boundaries. Oh, yes. Or, right. You also, I mean, now you're getting into, there can also just be problematic. Right. Like, you know- like legally, even right. if you start to have conversations that just don't feel well, appropriate. You mentioned sort of a manager where, you know, it felt like they were having very vulnerable conversations with people a lot. Or what was the situation there? Yeah, I worked with an individual, not for very long, I'll tell you, who really prided themselves 
on the fact that a lot of people in their one-on-one sessions would end up crying. And I thought this was like super weird. And yeah. I said to them, I was like, you know, it, that's, I mean, that does happen, by the way. People cry. Right. Sometimes they're frustrated, they're tired, they're anxious. You know, you yeah. talk about getting a top review one. Yeah, I one talk in the book about yeah. a time when I cried in my one-on-one because I realized I was overwhelmed with my right. job and my life. I was a new mom. It was really hard. So it's totally normal, but it's not that frequent, right? And the way that this person would talk, it was like at least a few times a week, someone in this. Brutal. And I think what was going on was that this person was on the wrong end of the continuum. They thought their job was coaching into therapy. Like I would be like coaching into execution right. is my view of the job. And this person was coaching into therapy and thinking that was helping. And maybe in some cases it did. I mean, I wasn't in the room. This right. is the challenge with management. You're not in the room with the other manager and their direct report. But right. I ended up sort of giving them, I actually, we went out to dinner and I gave them some feedback where right. I said, you know, I feel like you might actually be making, because I also heard some feedback. I was like, right. you might be making people uncomfortable. Right. Because it's like you're pushing them emotionally. Right. And is that really what you think? And they, to their credit, were like, wow, I mean, I don't, but I think their view of management and mine were just different. Right. And as I said, we didn't end up working together for very long. And there's a reason for that. Let's just say that. Well, let's, do a little coaching. I'm happy to be vulnerable. I don't know how easy Great. it'll be to do over Zoom. But like, Let's I mean, it's it. funny just to give you a starting point from something you said. I once got a, approached by, you know, a coach at a conference, just sort of introduced, she was introducing herself and she's like, do you have like imposter syndrome? And I said, no. But like you said, I do think that is, imposter syndrome is one of the ones that I feel like comes up again and again. And there... I feel like I suffer almost from sort of the perfectionism, you know, where mm -hmm. it's like, oh, mm -hmm. I think my stories should be amazing. And then, yeah. so if I don't think I'm in sort of, if that's in grasp, then I'm like, oh, I should do other things. And yeah. when I used to be just like sort of a pure reporter, it was like, at least it was always like the thing that I could do to be productive was to be a reporter. And so maybe I would sort of procrastinate or whatever, but it was still always clear what the North Star is. Yeah. Now I'm in this interesting situation where there are lots of legitimately productive things that I can do that like are other people's real jobs that I'm starting to appreciate, like what those are, you know, like I hosted a conference, you know, I'm like trying to hire if anybody wants to work for a newcomer, I'd like a reporter, you know, and so there are lots of things that I can do that are genuinely productive. I don't necessarily give myself credit for, I don't know, but like, how do you, yeah, where can you lead me on that? Or that's a starting point at least. Yeah, I mean, I think that, so just reflecting back, I think you're describing a journey that a lot of people go on when they become leaders, which is as an individual reporter, you knew what reporting was right. and what your job was and you felt comfortable you could do it. As you became maybe more of a writer and someone with more opinion in your reporting, right. you had to start a, you got a little more perfectionist because you're like, well... Or how do I define what great is? Right. And you're holding a high bar for yourself. And now you're talking about a harder stage even still, which is what my job is, is different right. every day. And so at least I knew in those first two buckets, generally what my version of great was and right. what I should be doing, even if I couldn't always achieve it. And maybe right. I was holding myself to too high a standard, yeah. which paralyzed me sometimes. That happens to all of us. Yeah. Okay, but now you're in a totally new realm, which is right. like basically going from an individual contributor to a manager to a leader. Yeah. As a leader, there's a lot of different ways you could spend your time. Right. Like, right? Like, 
And you could make an argument for like, I should host a conference every week. I should do a right. story every week. Right. I should interview three people. Like right. I can't, I mean, I'm a little paralyzed thinking about all your potential paths. And you have to be very self-actualized on like, what is your form of leadership? Right. What do you believe your version of this job is? Right. And no one is going to tell you you're right or wrong, which is very unstable, right? right? Doesn't that feel like you feel a little bit like, who do I look to? Right. I mean, I mean, maybe there's some examples in your field that you can look to and say, well, what do they do? But I think where I would start is, and you know I would do this, which is when you think about a newcomer and your mission, like what is your vision? What are you right. trying to achieve in the long term with the organization that you've created? Well, I think, you know, I'd like it to be sort of a real newsroom covering Silicon Valley, sort of beyond yeah. just me, despite the wonderful name. I, I think the thing I struggle with and I'm still figuring out is, you know, I, I feel like my readers are very attached to my voice. And yeah. I love having written a great piece and like doing that. It requires a lot of focus. And then at the same time, I feel like I'm very recharged, like working with people. Like, I think there's a part yeah. of me that's yeah. like, I love sort of the management piece of it. Oh, good. I like working with people. Like if anything, I, I think part of the reason I want it to be bigger is like being a solo newsletter writer where you're just like, just yourself is like, I don't know, not my style. Like I miss sort of the newsroom. You know, I don't necessarily want to be under the thumb of some editor yeah. anymore, but you know, I want to recreate that sort of working with people. And I think that's sort of one of the appeals of being successful enough that I can afford that. that. I also yeah. love the conference thing, which is a totally new thing. Yeah. And so, you know, like a conference, you do it, you know, a couple times, but you know, it's anyway. But I think what you're articulating is a couple of layers, which is one, what is your vision for what this could be? And actually you have enjoyment in that vision, which right. is you're leading beyond yourself to have people have an impact working in, in a more of a newsroom environment. Right. And you should embrace that and say, right. well, that's a completely legitimate vision to have, Eric. Right. And it means, by the way, less of your voice. Right. And so you also need a very clear view on, I'm going to be giving up something right. that may be one of the cornerstones of my earlier success, which is so much a focus on me. Right. But by the way, you don't have to completely give it up. I think part of what I'm hearing from you is like, as a leader, you need a balance between building the vision and the team newsroom environment and reserving space where you get to continue to be a personality, as it were. Right. I don't love that word. But, you know, someone who's hosting the conference, the podcast, right. writing the occasional story. Right. And I think some of the I interviewed Dan Weiss, actually, who's the outgoing CEO of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, of all things. But one of the most eloquent parts of the interview for me from him was he had led colleges. He's leading this huge museum. He's like, if I don't reserve a certain amount of my own individual work, I fail as a leader. I'm not energized. Right. I must preserve that. And he right. knows that he's like retiring, right? He's at the end of his career and he's known that for a long time. So you've got to listen to yourself. But I think the hardest thing that I'm hearing from you is that bridge from where you are today to what you see this could right. be. And how much you drive people over the bridge and leave some behind. And that, gosh, leadership is lonely, right? right? And I think what you will find is you make that decision almost every day in how you spend your time, who you spend it with, right. what criticisms or requests from your readers that right. you listen to and don't listen to. Right. 
And a lot of leadership is having a conviction and like, this is what I want. I mean, also the freedom. You said you love the freedom of you're your own boss. Like you got to build what you want to build. And sometimes when you have feedback, like this really isn't working, you got to listen to that. But I, I really, I think ultimately it's, the leadership journey part of this is often the hardest one for people for exactly the reasons you're articulating, which is you have to define more what success is. Yeah. I mean, I think it can be hard to, if you make a choice, you're like, okay, I'm, we're focusing on this. Well, first of all, to actually do the giving up of other things, like to admit like, oh, if we do this, it means that this and that are not going to happen. So if you're still sort of committing yourself to all of it, then there's a lot of room for being self-critical. And then even if you do sort of commit to one vision, but you're like, oh, but I'm going to I'm gonna try to do this other thing. It just creates a lot of room, I think, for negativity, even if. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, what you're also saying is you can't keep doing all the things you have right. been doing. Right. And it, I think leadership failure is not recognizing. I mean, I always am pushing founders. I'm like, what are the things that only you can do? Right. And that list should not be getting longer. It right. should be getting shorter. Right. And I would say the same thing to you, Eric. You're a founder. Like, what can only you do and how are you making that list shorter, not longer? Right. And that means you are giving some things up. And now if you're giving up too much and you're reacting to it, that's actually normal. But you really got to then go back to, well, this is my vision. I meant to be giving this up. And you kind of have to restart your own motivation cycle. I mean, you talk somewhere in the book about identifying sort of cognitively difficult tasks and blocking off like a full day. That was something that really resonated with me. I mean, I'm curious, it, the, the switching is I think one of the hardest things because it's especially writing requires so much like real clear thinking. And so then even if I'm not in what I feel like is the headspace, sometimes I just need to start writing, but other times it's like, you know, How do you reserve the time to make sure you can sort of think? I mean, the main thing, yes, there's two things in that section that you're referring to. Thank you for being such a close reader. But one is when I'm avoiding something, when something's not getting done, I have to stop myself and look at my list and say, why am I not doing this? Right. And sometimes that I'm not confident I can do it and I need to ask for help. Sometimes I need to delegate it because I'm never going to get it done because it actually wasn't that important that I do it. But often it's that I haven't reserved the space to do it. Like I got to block two hours and cut off all the noise and do it. You know, and I think that's because your context switching is your cognitive load. You just like can't concentrate, right? right? And so what I recommend in the you chapter of the book is like you really need to do your own kind of audit because everyone's different. Like some people have no problem blocking off and going deep and sort of writing a long thing. And, you know, but I think for you... Thinking like, what are those tasks that are weighing on me? What do I need to create the environment where I get it done? And context switching is probably the hardest part of a leadership job because your day can end up. This is the other thing is I think the best leaders, and I'm not good at this, by the way, personally, are really disciplined about their time and protecting it. And I'm the force that invades leaders' time. You know, like, let's jump on the phone. Let's, you know, I'm I'm the chaos of, you know, in some ways the universe <laughs> where it's like trying to pull people away from their very organized schedules. Yeah. And that, You're the chaos monkey. <laughs> well, because, you know, reporting, like often it's just so much better just to like get somebody on the phone right that moment than like do all the, you know, to try and yeah. jump the line a little bit, which creates, it's sort of a chaotic practice, obviously, right? Because if it's faster just to sort of 
cut the cue. But yeah, but then I'm just laughing because I'm I feel bad sometimes. Yeah, at cutting you're the problem. I love lives. it. Maybe that's the first step. <laughs> I mean, as like if you're the like you know, founder, I'm still uncomfortable with that title, but how do you know when you're doing enough? I guess I would think is a sort of very universal question, right? Like I feel like when I was a Bloomberg reporter, I had a sense of, you know, how productive I was relative to people and felt Mm. good about it. So I know it's like, okay, in this sort of comfortable environment, I can be sort of very productive. Mm -hmm. Then it's hard in this role to judge whether it's like simply I need to be doing more or if it's just like i my understanding of productivity is so different with all these like different tasks yeah you're asking the hard ones today like these are the soul searching (laughs) i mean i think this is i'm someone who sort of takes these abstract concepts and try to make them very tactical yeah well actually my answer is really pretty tactical which is if you look again back at like, what are you trying to accomplish? And I always think like in one year, in six months, in three months, in one month, in one week today. Yeah. And you really, because all we have, especially you and I, we're not 10x engineers right. as far as I know. All you really have is your time plus your talent. And so I really think about like if this is either I have that list has to be right of what I'm trying to accomplish. Yeah. And it's usually maybe 80% right. But, you know, it's roughly right. And then I have to hold myself accountable to scoping it appropriately. Like, I mean, literally sitting in front of me is the list for this week. I don't Hmm. know if you can see. Of It's actually really good this week. I've got, like, I'm at 80% check marks. Hmm. But, like, these are the most important things for me to get done this week. And some days I got a lot more done than others. And I had to give myself a break and say, okay, Wednesday was not as productive as I wanted. So Thursday. But I really think... It's this balance of holding yourself to the standard of getting the stuff done that is achieving the goal and the vision, and then also giving yourself some grace at moments when something is harder or takes longer. But it sounds like, I mean, you're talking a lot about perfectionism and a high bar. Like, if you were someone who's like, I'm really comfortable working for a few hours and then saying, oh, I'm done, you're not. You know, you have to also know yourself and say, I'm someone who holds a high bar. And if you're pretty, like, I look at my week this week, I'm pretty happy. Right. I didn't get everything done, but I really, you know, got what I think was right. Right. And it goes also back to being able to self-manage because, it, like, you don't have a boss anymore. I know. Right? It's so funny. I feel like at Bloomberg, I would be like, oh, I could be so, I could do so much more if only they managed me right. You know, and now I'm like, oh, there's, it's just all personal sort of psycho, you know, like, there's only so much, especially if you're, like, already a pretty diligent worker that they're going to, like, come in and, like, turn the screws to you to get even like a little bit more out of you. And it's right. Like, it already turns oh, out. It's, right. It turns out it's you. Right. Exactly. That's the thing I've learned the most. That's yeah. why the last chapter is called <laughs> you. you in my book. It turns out. This is great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really, oh, this is it was a pleasure, Eric. Thank you for the great questions yeah. All right. and discussion Amen. and good luck. Thank you. Okay. All right. Bye. Welcome. That's our episode. Thanks so much to Claire Hughes-Johnson at Stripe. Check out our book, Scaling People. Shout out to Tommy Heron, our audio editor, Riley Kinsella, my chief of staff, anyone who's producing this summer, and, of course, Young Chomsky for the wonderful theme music. Please like, comment, subscribe on YouTube, give us a review on Apple Podcasts, and most importantly, subscribe to the Substack, newcomer.co. Thanks so much. See you next week.
Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.